Uh, I'm going to kick us off today and, um, and then uh, turn it over to Justin, who's going to guide us today through, I think, what is really important. Now, let, let me start with this. Uh, Justin and I uh, meet regularly, talk probably almost every day when we're not um, on a vacation or holiday or something like that. And we were talking yesterday just about um, our plan for pastor guide and church. And we have a, a plan that we met a couple of months ago and really developed a whole plan for this year. Uh, we've started a new company called Context Leadership Group, and we're doing staffing and consulting and pastor guide is a part of that. We're just talking about where churches are right now and what we really needed to focus on, particularly right now in the month of January. Both Justin and I have read and been influenced by certain things, particularly guys like Andy Crouch, uh, who's with Praxis, who wrote the book Culture Making, I think. Uh, great voice, sounds like Mark Driscoll on audio, but uh, so you're going to feel like, is that Mark Driscoll talking? But great cultural thinker. And he wrote an article all the way back on March the 20th, I believe, in 2020, talking about COVID not just being this blip on the radar, but talking about the blizzard, the winter, and the ice age. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say I told you so, but guys like Justin and I, a year and a half ago, were saying to you on Pastor Guide, please pay attention to this. This is not some short-term thing that we're enduring in terms of COVID and politics and George Floyd and church and, and Trump and vaccines and so many things that are going on around these issues right now. And here we are, what, 2022, and I just got off the phone with a friend who canceled our meeting for this Friday because he said, hey, uh, several people in our family have COVID. My son, my son has COVID. Reuters this morning said one in three people in New York City have COVID. I was supposed to preach at a church last Sunday. There's 100 people in the church. 90 of them have COVID. Uh, so they canceled the church service last week. Uh, they want me to preach again this week. I'm going to go in, in a hazmat suit this week and preach, uh, uh, probably. But And then I read an article that I was telling Justin about uh, yesterday. In fact, I'm going to share the screen and just show you this article briefly. I read this article. This was one of the top read articles last year in religion news. Uh, it was put out by, by baptistnews.com, October 15th, and it says, largest ever U.S. congregational survey confirms what church consultants have been telling you. And I thought, well, that's interesting. What have church consultants been telling you? And I started to read this and scroll down, and it's really interesting. In fact, we'll share this with you, but essentially what it says is that uh, most churches now, it says two-thirds of churches in the United States, right down here, if you can see where I'm circling, have 65 or fewer people in attendance on any given weekend. The average church budget is $110,000 a year, uh, the portrait of the average U.S. congregation in 2020, 65 people in attendance, 200-person seating capacity, and it goes through and sort of talks about 15,000 congregations surveyed and where the church is right now. And essentially, if you just look at the first paragraph, for anyone who got, hasn't gotten the message yet, American congregations are changing rapidly and the old ways aren't working, <laughs> okay? So, when you just look at this increasing number of small congregations, Justin talked to us a couple of weeks ago. It's probably been three weeks now because we uh, hopefully, like you, took some time off uh, for Christmas and New Year's. 
and, and was just talking about the K-shaped recovery. All right, so are you understanding that? The K-shaped recovery. Larger churches are getting larger. Zoom as a technology company is getting bigger. Restaurants are going out of business. Small, yeah, Brian, we'll share the link to this. Smaller churches are getting smaller. Larger churches are getting larger. So I say all this to say, this is a five-minute rant, but consider it my uh, opening monologue, like I'm on Saturday Night Live, which is not very funny. So uh, I say all this to say, when Justin and I have been dialoguing around, where's the church going? Like, we don't feel like we can just show up here on a Wednesday and say, hey, here's how you need to be thinking about your staffing, and if you need to let a staff person go, or or we feel like we've got to address this to steal the podcast title that Justin introduced me to. We feel like we've got to address this cultural moment in the life of church. All right. So uh, Justin said to me on the phone yesterday in our conversation, he said, I'm reading about this every day. And, and I am, I Justin is, I, Brian, am convinced that if we are trying to get back to normal and not reading the greater cultural trends that are going on in our society, with church, uh, with, with all kinds of things, then we are missing the boat as leaders, all right? So what we're going to do for the next three or four weeks is I'm going to turn it over to Justin, and he's going to kind of guide us through this, is we're going to address some of this cultural moment in the life that we find ourselves in as churches over the next four weeks. And I want to encourage you, be here on Wednesdays invite some friends, let's get this dialogue started, and I'm going to turn it over to Justin to introduce the series. I mean, I've done it a little bit, but he's going to do it in a better way in terms of where we need to go in the next four weeks. Yeah, I, as Brian mentioned, I've been kind of obsessed with this for about two or three years now. Um, obsessed might be the wrong word, uh, but I, I, I read every single thing I can get my hands on with this. Kind of changes culturally, um, trends I'm seeing uh, among church planters. Um, I love that title, like everything that church consultants have been telling you, we just confirmed with the survey, because this is what Brian and I have been talking about for a long time. So I don't have any interest, you know, Brian said he doesn't have any interest in saying, I told you so. I do, uh, because this is the reality of the situation. It is changing. The days, I mean, when Brian and I first got into church planting, I, I planted my first church in 2004, and by 2008, we were almost a mega church. 2010, we were a full-blown mega church. 2012, we were 5,000 people on five campuses. Um, those days are over. We kind of came in, I think, on the tail end of a golden era of church in the West. And, and, I, and I just think that that era is over now. And, and it's a combination of cultural change, political upheaval, and then COVID was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back. COVID by itself probably would not have had the impact that it has had, but it just, it was the thing that shook up, you know, the Etch-a-Sketch or whatever and reset everything. So, you know, what we want to talk about for these next couple of weeks is like, what do we do now? And, and so we're kind of talking about this as like a storm and, you know, stealing Andy Crouch's language, who if you haven't read everything Andy Crouch uh, has ever written, you, you've just got to stop everything after this call, obviously, uh, and go do that. I mean, he's just one of the most insightful, humble, smart leaders uh, in Christianity today. And, uh, and so he's been talking about this stuff, you know, since March 2020, and he was able to predict, right, we are in this blizzard, this is a crazy thing, but we're about to enter into a winter, and then eventually an ice age. And at the beginning of it, it was easy to see the blizzard, right? COVID was a blizzard, and it was that that was obvious. 
I think what was harder to see is what exactly the shape of the winter would take and then what would an ice age look like? And, and it turns out that that blizzard was not just a one-off event, but it kind of has set off this winter. And now what we, I, I still think is going to be an ice age of the next probably 20 years um, uh, of it just looking different, church looking different in the West uh, and, and ministry looking different. So what I want to do quickly is recap some of what we talked about in our last call and then move forward into some, hopefully some helpful uh, advice for you guys. So one of the things we talked about is this K-shaped recovery that Andy Crouch has talked about. And he's talking about this economically, socially, and, and also in the ministry world. And he hasn't pressed as hard on this uh, as we are with churches, but this is what I'm seeing. And I think we will continue to see is big churches will get bigger. Small churches will get smaller. The middle will go away. So that's bad news, or at least hard news for churches in the kind of 100 to 300, maybe 100 to 500 range, especially if you don't own property, um, because that's what I think will largely go away. It's going to become harder and harder and harder to rent facilities from public institutions like schools. They're just not going to want to rent to churches, especially churches with conservative theology around sexuality, gender, race, those kinds of things. And so I think that's gonna become even more difficult, which is gonna force those churches into different arrangements. I think you'll see a lot more mergers if leaders can get ahead of it and be thoughtful and creative and humble uh, and aggressive. I think mergers and, and those kinds of things are, are, and strategic partnerships are going to be vital. Um, you know, our, our first church in Arizona merged uh, with two other churches before that was a necessary thing. We merged for vision. Um, but what came of it is I've probably consulted with 25 to 50 maybe churches over the last 10 years about mergers. And I just think that's kind of that kind of strategic thinking is going to become even more necessary. So I think the big churches are going to get bigger because they will have property. They will have the resources to weather the storm. They will, you know, just to be totally frank, they're going to gobble up a lot of the talent of, uh, you know, smaller churches who can't afford to keep everybody on staff as they let people go. Some of these larger churches will hire those people. They'll get better. People will see the need, you know, to, to go to those churches, see the opportunity to go to those churches and smaller churches are going to get smaller. And some of them will pivot into becoming kind of missional communities and house churches and all that. And I think there's going to be finally, right? Like some of these guys uh, in the house church missional community movement have been saying this for 20 years uh, and they've been wrong. Uh, now, now is their, now is their moment, right? Like you're going to see this resurgence of, um, you know, some of these uh, old voices and now going, oh, okay, we were maybe 20 years ahead of our time. Now's the time. So I do think we're going to see that K-shaped ha thing happen. Fewer and fewer and fewer people are going to identify uh, as, as Christians. I read this to you last time we met, but the percentage of Americans who identify as Christians now stands at 63%. This is according to Barna down, excuse me, from Pew, down from 65 in 19 and 78 in 2007. So that's a 15% reduction since 2007. It's incredible. Meanwhile, 29% of Americans now identify as having no religion, up from 26% in 2019 and 16% in 2007. Again, if I'm doing my math right, that's a 13% increase in people saying they have no religion since 2007. That's crazy. Okay, those are huge, huge trends. So 
Uh, Brian, do you have something you want to add to that before we move on? No, I, I just want to affirm it and say, I want to encourage you to engage and not be in denial about what's really going on, even if your certain pocket, there are pockets of, um, I said no, and then I'm adding something after all. So there are pockets where you might feel like things are still thriving right where we are, uh, because we're in a maybe a bit of a, more of a subculture, but largely speaking, this is what we're seeing across the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to keep moving uh, quickly because this is somewhat review, but not everybody's on every call. You know, we're going to see continued cultural pushback. This is just more and more and more, you know, I hate Twitter, um, but, I, but I think it's a useful, I, I would say Twitter makes for good windows, but not doors, right? It's a great way to look at what's happening, but a bad way to enter into those conversations. So um, uh, you, you, you glance at Twitter and everybody's fighting everybody, continued cultural pushback, more and more kind of civil war uh, happening among evangelicals, more and more people fighting each other for whatever space they have in this world, whatever platform they're trying to maintain, whatever, it, it's just becoming worse and worse. And so we're just going to continue to get cultural pushback. It's going to become less and less possible to be um, an Orthodox Christian in the public square. And that, that's going to be um, smaller or more and more difficult. One of the elements of this kind of bigger and smaller piece that I think we should think about is the kind of kind of cultural and herd dynamics at play. We talked about this uh, a little bit, but I want to press on a little bit more. People are going to feel, and they already are, continue to feel the need for tribe, right? The, the worst case scenario is that they look for tribe online, where it is just the, the biggest, biggest kind of cesspool of tribal dynamics that you could find. Best case scenario, people find tribe in the real world with real people. And the, the, the desire for tribe is going to take on, I think, two different two different kind of uh, characteristics. One is some people are going to look for tribe in strength, right? And so that, those are the people that are going to be drawn to large churches because they're going to walk into a large group of people with, you know, all the lights and lasers, all the kind of the accoutrement of strength and power and influence, and they're going to find safety in that tribe. There's going to be another group of people who look for tribe in relationships and they're going to want anonymity and they're going to want to be kind of known. And this is where I think you'll again see this exacerbation of the, the K-shape. The big church is becoming bigger. The small church is becoming smaller. Some people are going to look for, I just need my people and I'm not trying to fight a fight. I'm not trying to kind of align with power um, or influence. I just need to have a safe space to be Christian. And that's where I think guys like Rod Dreher and the Benedict option and some of that is going to become, you know, more and more popular. I'm a big fan of Rod Dreher, especially the Benedict option and that way of thinking. And I, I, I hope, and, and we'll talk about this in coming weeks, there's a way to actually kind of meld these two and, and benefit from some of the ideas and philosophy of, of Rod Dreher and Benedict option stuff. Um, but without abandoning institutions. So we'll talk more about that. But I, but I think um, we're, we're going to, people are going to need to feel, they're going to feel the need for tribe in order to survive this coming era. And then the last thing I'll say before we get into, you know, kind of some of our recommendations and what we're thinking about is this. If you're not following World Magazine's interviews with Tim Keller, uh, you really should. There was a, a part one that came out a week or two ago 
part two just came out. Um, and Justin Taylor actually picked up a quote from that interview that was easily the money quote of the interview. And, and I want to read it to you. It's a little bit long. Um, and I think uh, Brian might paste this into the, uh, the uh, chat there. But, it, but Keller, uh, in response to a question that the interviewer said, basically, like, have you ever seen, you know, there's so much change, so much uh, challenge right now for churches. Have you ever seen anything like this? And this is what he said. He said, I'd say that the culture is definitely more polarized than it has ever been. And I've never seen the kind of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. In virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view and the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they're being formed by the church. This is creating a crisis. And he finishes with this. He says, no, I haven't faced anything like this in the past, right? This is, this is, uh, this is Tim Keller saying, you know, here at the tail end of his ministry, that what we're facing now is just something he has never even seen right? Completely unprecedented. And so I, I think we have to take this seriously, not just because Keller says no, so not just because Andy Crouch says so, but literally everything around us is, is pointing in this same direction, that the world is fundamentally changing and there's no going back. This is not just a blip of COVID and we've got to go back, right? It's not that. This COVID has just been the thing that applied the pressure. I use this illustration all the time. You know, my computer's on a desk. You start applying pressure to the top of that desk, it's going to break, and it's going to break in the weakest places first, right? We know that those weak places exist, but as long as there's no pressure, they, they hold up fine. But under increased pressure, your weakest places in, you know, in your desk or your house or whatever, the, that's what breaks first. And I think what we're seeing with COVID is just simply pressure. It, it's just pressure that is um, you know, causing the fault lines that have always existed along you know, political lines social lines, you know, lines of power dynamics and all the different things, racial dynamics that, that exist in our churches, all of that is breaking under the pressure of COVID and, and the ramp up of digital media and social media and these kinds of things. So it all has to get addressed. It's all real. We have to, we have to really, I, I think, adjust to this. And I would just say the era of church planning and Christian leadership that we all grew up in, it's over. And, and that's depressing right? Because it's way easier and, and more attractive to kind of continue to function um, in the rules of the game as we know it. The reality is the rules are changing, right? This is a, maybe a bit of an aside, but I was thinking about this watching football this week. Um, and one of the commentators is uh, Sunday night football, you know, a, a defensive player went in uh, to hit a guy who was falling to the ground it was one of those gray area plays where was he down? Was he not? The guy comes in, hits him as he's coming down, trying to aim it. It's all happening. Bang, bang. And Chris Collinsworth was doing the, the color, you know, on the Sunday night game. And he just basically said, like, that's just a hard play for it. There, there's just no winning for that defensive player. Things are changing. The rules are changing. All of this is happening rapidly. And he's having to adjust after a 10 year career under different rules. So I, it maybe just maybe think of all of you guys and, and all the pastors we're trying to serve and help that the rules are changing on us, even though we've, we've kind of known what the game is for the last 20 years for me, 30 years for Brian. And when you know the rules of the game, you know how to win the game. 
and, and a lot of us have seen a lot of success and we've known how to win the game. Now, all of a sudden, the rules to the game are changing. Uh, and that's hard. It's, it's frustrating. And we're seeing guys, I was texting with a friend who has been a worship leader, working with worship leaders for a long time. And, I'm, and I'm, we're work, working for a, a, looking for a worship leader here uh, at All Souls. And I'm like, man, where do I find a guy? He goes, I, I, I got nothing. More and more guys are leaving ministry, going and getting real jobs, right? And doing all that. It's just, it's a different game and it's causing a lot of turnover, a lot of change. So we want to talk about that. Before we do that, kind of pivot into it, Brian, what would you add to this? What I want to say is, is, is as we give you some, some practical strategies here, um, I want to say to you, this doesn't mean like God's people have always lived through difficult times. So this does not mean that the gospel isn't true or woe is me. Or in fact, if anything, we've been living in a season of relative peace. I wrote a post for the Gospel Coalition a week or so ago. I'll, I'll copy and paste it in here so you can see it because I give you some strategies here in terms of how to navigate this. Uh, just the hope, you know, my post was called Hope Will Win in 2022. Uh, what I want to say is that when we say this is depressing, it is depressing, but remind yourself that God's people have always thrived during difficult times. So as we give you these strategies here, we're not somehow saying, in fact, if anything, there's really nothing to be discouraged about. God is God. God is on his throne. Uh, God's promises are true. Uh, God has promised us suffering. And so what we want to encourage you to do is don't be naive and be in denial. Don't try to get back to the way everything was because we are not going back. I still think a lot of pastors I interact with think we're going back. They think we're going back. This is going to be a blip on the radar. We, I, Justin and I both just don't agree with that. Uh, we, we agree with what Andy Crouch is saying. We're saying, look, I mean, you know, I, I was um, a couple of days ago, my wife and I went over to the, the beach. It's nine miles from our house and there are boats everywhere. I, you've probably heard about this. There are boats everywhere that can't deliver things. I'm I have a broken garage door that will not open. I'm trying to get it fixed. And the guy who comes to my house says it's a year wait because the metal to make garage doors, just even to fix the parts, is sitting on a boat somewhere. So like, like we're and we've been going through this for two years. So number one, I would just say before we give, and this isn't the bulk of our, our teaching to you today, but just remember, God's people have always faced times like this. And then number two is don't be in denial. Don't be that person that's like, I'm in denial, all right? And Justin, give us some, some practical, like practically, what do we do moving forward here in light of the fact that the era of church planning and Christian leadership that we all grew up in, that you and I planted in, where we saw the kind of success that planters are not seeing today is over. What do we do? Give us some practical teaching here. Yeah. So I'm mean, just building off what Brian just said about not being in denial. The first step is we have to recognize reality, right? It, it is hard sometimes to come to grip with reality and, and to really look it in the face. Uh, but that's what we have to do. We have to recognize reality. Um, and, and, and so as I was thinking about it this morning, I thought, why is it so hard for us to, to do that, to really come to grips? I, I'm kind of by nature a pessimist. So I'm thriving you know, right now, uh, you know, because I, I always want to look at like, not, not necessarily worst case scenario, but like, let's just see it as it is. And I've worked over the years with guys who are like, yeah, but God can do anything. And that's 100% true. God can do anything. He often does do anything. But, you know, 
building a vision on God doing a miracle is, you know, it's probably just not practical. So I'm, if, I'm nothing if not practical. So I, I want to address a couple of reasons why we might be resistant to coming to grips with reality um, before we actually jump into what to do, just because I, I know that there's even if for the, the most bought in of us, there's always uh, a hesitation at some point. And, and I want to get after that last 10%, if nothing else, um, that would keep us from, from really staring down reality. So one, uh, we don't want to admit that things are changing because we don't want to change, right? I, I talk to guys all the time who got into ministry because they want to preach, they want to teach, they maybe want to disciple, maybe want to counsel, uh, and, and a change to the environment means they have to change what they're doing. I was literally just talking to a guy yesterday who basically just said, hey, man, I just feel called to preach the word. And, and I don't know about all the stuff you're talking about, because um, we're talking about strategy and how to, how to change, how, how to adjust our strategy, or, you know, this guy I was talking to, how to adjust his strategy to, to meet these new needs. And he's like, man, I, I just want to preach the word, right? That's, that's a huge stumbling block for guys, that this isn't, this isn't what they kind of got into this for right? We've got into ministry because we wanted to be a certain kind of person or have a certain kind of life or do a certain kind of thing. We just pictured ourselves as the next Spurgeon or the next Alistair Begg or the next Chandler or whoever it was. We just went, I just want a pulpit and, and I want a writing platform. And, and all of that is changing now. So none of this is bad per se. Like you, you had a vision for who you wanted to be. It's not bad, but it can keep us from facing reality because there are implications on what this would mean for our lives and, and our roles. Two, we don't want to admit things are changing because we're afraid. And, and I, I think that's a really important thing to get after. Um, you know, I, I've benefited a ton from, uh, you know, a guy named Jeff Schulte and Tin Man Ministries and, uh, you know, coming to grips with your feelings and emotions and all of that. And I remember the first time I talked to him, he's like, well, what, you know, what, what are you feeling right now? I'm like, angry. It's like, what else? I'm like, anger? I don't know. Like, that's all I got, right? And, and he helped me to kind of get after, you know, actually a lot of this is fear, right? Fear that I'm angry about being afraid or I'm angry about the thing that's causing me to be afraid. And so being able to kind of name and recognize, man, the future is going to be harder. It's going to be more combative. It's going to be more competitive. It's going to be less fruitful. And that's terrifying, right? It's why I see so many guys getting out of ministry because the pressure is just too much. The fruit's not there. You're working the soil. People are leaving. People are angry. People you invested years and years in are leaving and leaving bad Google you know, reviews on their way out, even though you've given your whole life to them. But you just, you, you took the wrong side on masks. You took the wrong side on race. You took the wrong side on COVID, whatever it was. And, and all of a sudden you're the bad guy. So I think we need to come to grips with like, hey, we've, we've got some emotions around this, right? Like our fear is going to keep us from facing down reality. Uh, number three, we don't want to engage the realities of this storm because it's easier to obsess over other people's. I, I see this more and more um, with the social media stuff. The internet gives us the ability and with it the temptation to disconnect from our people and fight a, a distant enemy. Right. So we get online, get on Twitter and fight with, you know, somebody on the East Coast. We fight some theological enemy, some woman who's preaching or some guy who's, you know, 
we, we think is, you know, uh, teaching CRT or whatever the thing is, right? Like fighting on the internet is a form of escapism, right? It's not that different from playing video games. You don't have to disciple your own people or be honest about your own failure. You could just drop bombs from a distance. And so I would really encourage you, like, don't let the temptation of the opportunity uh, of fighting on the internet distract you from the reality of the situation you face. Because fighting on the internet is way easier than dealing with the reality of real people in your real ministry. Uh, and then lastly, we don't want to engage a storm because we really don't understand it. And it's overwhelming to think about, right? Lots of guys that I'm talking to are, are recognizing, like, I see something's changing. I see that the culture is changing. I see that my church is half the size, but I don't know what to do. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to think about it. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know the answers. I don't know what to do. And so we just kind of put our head in the sand and, and, and just kind of keep doing business as usual because we just don't know what to do. Right. So that makes for such a great transition that I just set myself up for. So the question then is, how do we engage the storm in our own churches? And that's what I want to do. I want to give you uh, seven questions, not that you would answer now, uh, but just that you need to start thinking about. Okay. And I'm going to run through them quickly. Remember, we've got the Q&A. Put questions in the Q&A. We'd love for this to be more dialogical than it is. You know, it's one thing for Brian and I to talk about this stuff together and you guys kind of watch us talk about it. But we really would love to engage you guys because we need to keep learning as well. We haven't cornered the market on these answers. That's why this first step is just a series of questions, um, because in order to be able to come up with answers, we've got to have a really clear sense of what the problem is. And, and so we got to ask questions. So please put questions in the Q&A. We want this to be as dialogical as possible. So here are seven questions that I think we should all be asking about our ministries right now. Question one. What is the reality of our situation? Okay, be honest. Where are things at with your church? I think we all need to stop saying the phrase pre-COVID. That's not a thing. That, or it's an irrelevant thing. I don't care what size your church was pre-COVID other than if you're just like sad and you want to talk about how sad you are <laughs> that half your church left. Great. But as far as like that being a reason or a reference point even, I just think it's kind of unhelpful. You're no longer a 400-person church. You're a 200-person church. You're no longer 700. You are now 300. Whatever it is, that's what you are, okay? It is what it is. Your numbers are your numbers. Your giving is your giving. Your attendance is your attendance. Question is then, what is your trajectory? Have you bottomed out? Some, some churches, like Brian said, haven't seen you know, the, the, you know, the, the decline that some other churches have. Church I'm at here, peaked at about 150 before COVID. It's now 40. It's 40. We're 40. We're 40 people. That's all it is. The 150 is an irrelevant number. We're 40 people right now. So have you bottomed out? Where are you? Just get an accurate and honest description of this is where we are. If people come back in the next year, great. That's bonus. That's icing on the cake. But think about your church as it is. Be honest. One of my favorite books, Good to Great by Jim Collins, one of the principles of Good to Great is face the brutal facts, but never give up hope. As pastors, we often want to just skip straight to hope and have a general sense of like, well, things aren't as good as they could be, 
Uh, but, you know, God is good and sovereign and all that. It's no question. God is good and sovereign. And you need to face the brutal facts about your church. Where are you? Who are you? Okay. So that's one. Two, why haven't people come back? Okay. And I need you to really do some work on this question because there are easy answers that let us off the hook, right? Well, they're afraid of COVID. Well, is that true, right? Why really have they not come back? There's no benefit to obscuring the reality of this answer. There's no benefit to you to obscuring any fault that might lie in you. Hey, they're not coming back in, in part because we haven't responded well to this or something. We had a misstep, you know, in this area. We said this and it probably didn't come out right. We, whatever, whatever it is, own the truthfulness of the situation. Why haven't people come back? Because you won't be able to diagnose a solution or not, you won't be able to come up with a solution if you can't accurately diagnose the problem. So are you living in a place where, you know, culture has moved left? Are you living in a place where culture has moved right? Are you living in a place that has, you know, a big hotspot uh, for COVID? Are you living in a place where another church has really grown and thrived? Like, be honest. Why have you shrunk and lay it all out? Give me a top five or give yourself a top five reasons why you think people haven't come back. That's number two. Number three, what are people mad about? What are people mad about? And this is where I, I, I tweeted recently that pastors should follow their people on social media because they are far more honest on social media than they will ever be in church, right? You'll never learn the real reason why people are leaving uh, unless you follow their social media. Then you have, might, might have a chance to, to learn about it. Okay, figure out what is driving the emotions of your people, uh, those that are with you, and perhaps even those who have left, right? This is speaks back to that Keller interview, right? He talked about how outrage rather than information is what is causing people to kind of live in these immersive digital news environments. And it's what's stoking and motivating people is outrage. Well, what are your people mad about? Not some other people, not you know, Russell Moore or not, whatever, like, what are your people mad about? Uh, and and what, what's driving them? Because that's going to give you not just a, a, a sense of like why people are leaving or why they're not a part of it, but what you should be talking about, what you should be preaching about. You need to address the issues that are being felt most viscerally by your people. So what are people mad about? Number four, what lies are they believing? Okay. What false teaching has crept into the community, whether that's the people you're trying to reach, the people that you have, what lies are they believing? And again, don't tell me about the lies that the world is believing or that are prolific on Twitter. Your people, what are they actually believing? What are the lies? Because I would guess more of them are believing a lie about laziness than they're believing a lie about CRT. Okay, not to say that those aren't lies and the CRT is not a real thing. I'm not trying to get into that conversation. I'm just saying a lot of times we want to make it as pastors, make it about this big thing or this big ism when a, a lot of times our people have just gotten lazy and out of the habit. Okay, so what lies are they believing? Number five, what truths have been revealed? This is a really important one. Okay, going back to my illustration about pressure, pressure is good. Pressure on our theological convictions is good, okay? When you live in a, in a world or in a bubble where there is no pressure on the way you articulate penal substitutionary atonement or complementarianism or gender and sexuality, when there is no pressure, you get lazy, 
It's not about you. It's not an indictment of you. It's natural human nature. You get lazy. But when people start to apply pressure, for instance, let's say on the gender women in ministry kind of issue, right? When you are in an environment where people go, wait, so tell me why, again, women can't be elders, then it forces you to be able to answer those questions well. When they go, okay, so they can't be elders, but why can't they preach? Why can't they teach? Why couldn't they lead a small group? It forces you to get sharper and better. And you will realize in the process that there have been things that you have been teaching, believing, propagating, acting on that upon pressure realize, oh, you know what? Like, there's not actually a real strong defense of that, biblically speaking. We just kind of didn't have to think hard about it. And so we just kind of did what everybody else did. Pressure can be really good. And I think this is a unique opportunity for the church. This is something we'll talk about in future weeks of this series is, I think one of the things the church is going to have to do in the future, in the next five to 20 years, is get a lot better about publicly repenting, humbly owning the ways in which we screwed things up or, or have limited things unnecessarily or allowed cultural norms to influence the way we've done ministry. And I think owning that stuff quickly uh, and, and honestly and vulnerably is going to be pretty key for the future. So being able to ask, like, what truths have been revealed by this whole thing? What are some default things we've been thinking and talking about that actually, upon pressure, aren't actually true? And, and start to kind of own those things. This is stuff we want to be talking about from the pulpit. Um, so number six, which churches are growing in your area? Who is thriving? Why? Talk to those guys. Figure out why are they growing and who are they growing with? Uh, and I think that will reveal some things to you. I won't go too far into what that might reveal, but I know what's happening here in LA. And then lastly, number seven, as a result of all this stuff, it's time to start being honest about what the next five years might look like. And as we've talked about making a three-year plan or a five-year plan for your church, I, I think having much more modest three to five-year plans is, is the direction we need to go to be real and, and, and kind of honest about like, Hey, probably at best, the next five years is going to look like stasis with mild growth. It's not, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take the city in the next five years. I, I just don't think that's on the table anymore. So I do think there needs to be a level set uh, of what the next three to five years look like for your church and the mission and the vision and all this and what you're putting in front of your people. And that's going to have a huge impact on personnel decisions and strategy decisions and tactics and all, all of those kinds of things. So that was a bit of a fire hose. Let me recap really quickly these seven questions. One, where, what is the reality of our situation? Who are we? Two, why haven't people come back? Three, what are people mad about? Four, what lies are they believing? Five, what truths have been revealed? Six, which churches are growing? And seven, what might the next five years look like. Brian, wraps up. All right. So Rachel, can you do, I was going to do this, but Rachel's Rachel's on our team. Can you copy and paste these seven things in, in one post so people can copy and paste these out um, just so they're in one post together? Because what I want to do is I want to encourage you, this is coaching, not just dialogue. Okay. So we're, we are coaching you, meaning we're helping you lead more effectively the church that God has called you to lead or the area of the church that God has called you to lead in. 
And so when you walk through these questions, the reality of our situation, why haven't people come back? What are people mad about? What lies are they believing? What I love about this, um, Rachel's going to put them in the Facebook page. That's great. I got it. I think I, you know what? I can put them in here, Rachel, because I can, here's what I will do. I will do this. I think you can get them right here. And then Rachel will put them in the Facebook page also. So when you ask these questions, what you are essentially saying is you're saying um, you're, you're, you're getting away from Fox News or CNN News or the podcast you listen to uh, or the, you know, the, 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 the noise that's going on and you're actually applying these to your own situation. So I want to encourage you as a coach to take three or four hours and take a morning or an afternoon sometime this week or next week and sit down and actually ask yourself these questions because what's the reality of your situation? You might be in denial about that. You might say, hey, we're a church of uh, 300 people because that has a such and such a budget, but you may not be that anymore. In fact, you're probably not that anymore. You may be a church of 120 or 180 or whatever it is. I was talking to a pastor yesterday and he said to me, we were 2000 people before COVID. We brought back about 1500 people, but to be honest with you, three or 400 of those people we don't even think are going to stick around. We're realistically a church of a thousand people. No, some of you are a church of 40 and you were a church of 150. So I really want to encourage you as a coach. This isn't just for dialogue. This is for you to dig down and to take some time and to answer these questions locally and honestly. What's the reality of our situation? What is our trajectory? Why haven't people come back? What are people here mad about? not on TV, Matt, about what lies are they believing? What truths have been revealed? Which churches are growing? Now, why might you ask that question? Because we're trying to compete? No, it's because I love when people say, I don't love. Uh, I'm annoyed when people say, well, churches just aren't growing in the inner city. No, actually, I know churches that are that are booming in the inner city. Maybe that one's not, but this one is. And why, what might the next five years look like? So I want to encourage you to do the hard work of putting in the time to, to uh, answer these questions in your context. Now, let's, um, let's go to Q&A here. We've got another five minutes or so left. We usually try to quit at 10 minutes before the hour. So um, we'll be here with you next week as well. So we're going to do this all through the month of January, helping you address these kinds of questions. Uh, here's a question from Luke, who's up in Canada. Uh, Canada, I was trying to say it with a Canadian accent, but I don't have it. So Luke says, are there any books that you would recommend for us to read through if we want to understand the storm and begin to think through it? Uh, Justin, first crack at this one. Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, a couple of things, Luke. One from kind of a big picture philosophical uh, level, After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre uh, is a is a classic, but it gets at, you know, kind of in a, you know, I can't recommend A Secular Age by Charles Taylor because you won't, you know, understand it. And that's not about you, Luke. That's just about humans uh, that don't have PhDs. They don't understand Charles Taylor. But John, uh, James K. Smith wrote a book about a secular age that I highly recommend. Um, that gets at some of the philosophical underpinnings of what's happening at a cultural level. Um, this is a, a little bit out of left field, but Ross Douthit, who's a New York Times writer, uh, wrote a book called The Decadent Society. Uh, it's not about church. It's about society, as you might imagine. Uh, and that I found to be super, super helpful as well um, to just kind of be a be outside. He's a Catholic guy, conservative guy, 
um, but outside eyes on on what's happening in culture. Um, I would say uh, you are uh, you are not your own by Alan Noble was the best book I read last year. And it gets at some of this movement uh, at a at a kind of a personal autonomy level that I think now we're seeing some of the effects of. Um, now, more specifically to church stuff, um, the disappearing church by Mark Sayers, I think is helpful, kind of gives some uh, some some uh, background to some of this stuff. The this cultural moment podcast is is a is a really useful resource. Again, anything that Andy Crouch writes um, is super helpful. Uh, and right now, mostly it's his uh, blog and, and some of those things that I that I think would be the most helpful things for you to read um, about this. Um, I'm looking at my um, I'm looking at my uh, my bookshelf right now. Um, you know, Carl Truman's uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Again, uh, it, to get an understanding of like how we got here. Um, Philip Reef uh, is a little bit more of an academic, but that's super helpful. The um, Triumph of Therapeutic uh, is his kind of classic. Uh, and, and all of that stuff, it, it, I'm recommending this because I don't want to give you a bunch of like pragmatic, here's how to strategize for that, right? Like, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand what's happening at the most like meta, philosophical, theological, cultural level. Because any book that gives you a strategy is, is just going to miss the nuances of your situation, no matter where you're at. Because Luke, you know, uh, the, the wild north is going to be super different than LA. It's going to be super different than DFW. It's going to be super different than the, you know, Miami, whatever. It's all different. So in order to be able to do good kind of exegesis of your world, you've got to understand this stuff at a high level and then to be able to kind of use those as lenses through which you see uh, your church and your specific situation. So I would read Benedict Adoption by Rod Dreher. I think he gets out a lot of this stuff um, and without giving too much like kind of pragmatic how-tos, which I just, I don't know is how helpful that is right now. By the way, in the coaching world, I'm oftentimes asked, hey, what exactly should I do? We're more about asking you to ask questions and do work than we are about giving you the exact solutions. When you write a life plan, when you put a priority management plan in place, when you write a vision plan, when you write a set of goals, we can't tell you what goals to set for this year. We can tell you the kinds of questions to ask, the kinds of work you have to put in the work here. Uh, nice job, George. You asked a question. I don't even know if Justin saw it, but Justin... Uh, uh, talked about Carl Truman's book. I'm personally about halfway through Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self. So I can't speak to it yet, except that I know a lot of people have read it uh, and I'm reading it. I've been reading it for about three months. It's, it takes a little while to get through that book uh, because yeah. it's an intense book. And I, I love, I wanna, I wanna affirm the, the kinds of reading that, that Justin is saying to read. You know, Alan Noble, um, Mark Sayers, uh, Carl Truman. Um, I haven't read, I did read the Benedict option. I haven't read the Trump of the therapeutic. This is the, these are the kinds of books that are going to get you thinking. Like I just read the, I heard a, a sermon from a pastor that I know and would consider a friend um, talking about how wrong the experts are all the time, you know, and, and dealing with sort of COVID and that sort of thing. And the experts, this, and you read the book, the death of expertise. And I think, Hey, pastor, if you keep telling people that there's no experts out there, guess what? You're not an expert either. Nobody's going to listen to you. 
Now, this is a bit of a parenthesis, but I'm going to do it. All right. I had a conversation with my two oldest kids day before yesterday with them pushing back on me on why women can't be pastors and preach. My two oldest kids, one who's graduated from Cal Baptist and one who is currently at Cal Baptist, who have not absorbed the teaching of the local church uh, on complementarianism, which, which Justin and I are both complementarians, and there's a range even of complementarians these days. My point is to say, my kids who have grown up in my own family, who have always been a part of a complementarian church, who has who have a dad who's the director of a complementarian church network, are asking those questions of me in my own home. All right. So if you, and they're basically going, Dad, we're not sure you're the expert on this. You better like so. So this is the kind of thing you have to be thinking about. So man, Justin, um, I mean, I just said a bunch of stuff there. So let me give you the final word before I wrap us up because I'm going to wrap us up. And, and if you have more questions, post them in the Facebook group, um, ask them this week, because we're going to deal with this topic throughout the month of, uh, of January. You've been having those conversations too, George, I see. So it's interesting because our kids are being barraged with stuff that is that is outside. I'm trying to get my kids to read the Bible with us this year. Uh, and we, you know, so we invited them all to our Bible reading plan. We've been reading it in front of them, you know, so because, well, I'll tell you what, uh, if you know, if your own kids are looking at you going, we're not sure you, you think you're the expert, dad, your people are certainly being influenced by a lot of other people. So Justin, uh, why don't you bring us home, finish us off and wrap us up, and then we'll be back next week. Yeah, the, the main takeaway for today, I think, is we've got to take this change seriously. The, the reality is, is changing all around us, and it just does not do us any good to pretend like that's not true. So I, I want to, to gently remind us, but firmly push us to, to really take seriously the changes that are happening and what their implications are going to be on how we do ministry. So I, I want to encourage us to do that. And I think that has to be done at a hyper-local level, right? Like we have to think about our church, our people, our community, and not some far-off internet fight that, that we want to fight or, you know, influence that we might have. Like, we want to read and understand as much as we possibly can so that we can, as best as we can, understand our people and then disciple them and care for them. Mm -hmm. So I, I just want us to really take this seriously. I think it's real. I don't think this is the sky is falling kind of moment. I think this is real. And, and things are just going to change. And, and they're not going back. So let's, let's talk honestly about what the future holds and how we can lead well. One of the things that Brian and I, and I'll speak for myself, but I think Brian would agree with this. I'm kind of obsessed with the question, what is the future of Christian leadership? I, I think that that is going to fundamentally be different in the next 25 years. And I really want to figure out some of those answers. And I want to do that in community. I want to do that in dialogue. I want us to figure that out together so that we can serve you well and help you have a vision for what the future of Christian leadership is so that we can kind of coach you through it and consult with you through it. That's what we want to do. And that's what we want to know. So uh, I'd love for you to join us in that conversation and in that process. This is one step along the way, and we'll continue to do that together. So love to see you guys next week as we'll continue this conversation uh, and, and hopefully equip you guys to be able to lead well uh, into the future. All right. We'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone. See you.